Hey, yo, this is Ergo. Facts. <laughs> I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. Facts. <laughs> and what we do here is Let's bring the facts to the people. <laughs> <laughs> and we try with those facts and maybe some other things to uh, reshape the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. And today we got, you know, a, a member of the home team, somebody entrenched in our community here in Chicago, space maker, cultural worker, organizer, Lisa Lee. Lisa is the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum. She's also a professor in art history and gender at UIC. She rocks with PNAP, rocks with Chicago Torture Justice Memorial, shout out to Squat. And just in general has been a central figure in the space making of a political culture space here in Chicago over the last couple decades that has birthed so much of what we showcase on this show. Um, so one, it was just great to learn a little bit about her trajectory to the city and to this work, some of the the twists and turns that she took that include a brief interlude among private jets and uh, fancy vacation locations. Yeah, we got a little bit of a look at the billionaire class here at Ergo. I don't think we've ever scratched that before. <laughs> we don't book a lot of a lot of people with billionaire access. That is true. <laughs> just a little three minute white lotus adjacent in the middle, and then we move on. Um, but but overall, yeah, a, a fantastic conversation with Lisa. You should find out more about the work of the National Public Housing Museum at nphm.org. As always, we're at Ergo Radio. Subscribe, comment, review the show wherever you listen. And yeah, anything else you want to throw in there, Dane, before we jump in with Lisa? Yeah, man, just stretch. It has nothing to do with the conversation, <laughs> but just take care of your body. Give yourself a good stretch today. <laughs> do you have a Damon stretch of the week? Just a just a, a forward bid. Just try to get as close to touching those toes. See what you get. Those hamstrings and lower backs. Try to loosen those hips up a little bit, baby. That's good. And if you need to bend your knees a little bit, that's fine. You don't want to yeah, overextend. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, it's move just, at your own pace. Yeah, get those hamstrings. Get those glutes fired, perhaps yeah, as a way of stabilizing. <laughs> yeah, get that circulation going to take in this this great information from the one and only Lisa Lee. <laughs> this has been Ergo's Cardiovascular Corner. Let's get into it with Lisa. Let's go. All right, friends, we're here. We are back on the line. We are so excited to be chopping it up with Lisa Lee today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my usual entrance. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which actually leads us to our first very uh, serious question, which we don't ask every guest, but I feel like you're a good, good uh, person for this. If you could have any animal noise be your entrance music, what animal would you choose? Oh, wow. That's great. I mean, I think usually like it's a lion roar. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> it's probably more like meow, 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> more like a kitty cat. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Uh, oh, what, what do you, Dame? This is Damon. I'm, 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 a, I'm a large jungle cat of different varieties. So in that jaguar <laughs> panther situation, and I get a little yeah. wow, 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 wow. Ooh. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, Usually that's he does deal. the claws with it for the for the, for the listeners at home. He does some claws and all. And then I like a it would not have the same hype up effect, but I like a good loon call. Loon mm. are like, uh, oh. like water birds, and they'll give like a real piercing through the air, like 
I'm not going to imitate a loon on the air, but it's a beautiful sound. Um, <laughs> you was about haunting, to go there. haunting. It is. It it's is a haunting. haunting. It is sound. haunting. It's when you're like, yeah. you know what? We're going to we're gonna we're gonna get an Airbnb on a lake in Wisconsin or something, and then you're like, man, it's a lot quieter here than it is at home. Except there's this like weird voice that's a loon. <laughs> M- might I ask that you add a loon call in post? Oh, we're, we're we're throwing a loon in in post. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Now that we got that squared away, uh, Lisa, let's start with the the same two-part question we start all of our conversations with, which is, in this time, however you define time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Great. I love that question. You know, it's hard times for so many people now. And the thing for me is I feel always really lucky and grateful for all that I have and for my family. My dad is 92 years old and is great. Uh, He has some dementia and can't remember, hasn't have any short-term memory. So it's this incredible sort of Afrofuturistic way of living with somebody where 80 years ago is just like a heartbeat ago, right? You know? (laughs) And so, um, you know, just like time has really been- um, But he's like missed the Trump administration. Yeah, exactly. Like, Fantastic. That's great gravy. news, right? <laughs> He's still in the Eisenhower it is gravy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, when America was great, yeah, that's just when like he's the, living. The heart of like union labor <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, and my mom is alive, and we just celebrated her birthday, and I have two amazing kids, and you know, it's like all really great. Oh yeah, I, I should say that, and you know, I have a great husband. So like, I love my family, and I love my chosen family. You know, like. Chicago is amazing for political organizing and chosen family. And so I sort of feel like I'm surrounded by people who not just love me and support me, but also challenge me and provoke me when necessary. And so, you know, push me to be the best person I can be. So I think every uh, things are good. Yeah. yeah I, I love that language of chosen family. I feel like we have chosen the same extended family. We're at the same yeah. chosen family <laughs> reunion and cookouts. And so, you know, part of what we are excited to talk to you about and what we've done with this show is working to build this like living real time archive. But our like historical memory is a little like vague before we started doing this. And so you as somebody who's been a part of this chosen family, I don't really know like your entry point or really when you really got into the game or or when you began to choose this family that you are a part of. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, really, if we would have like a fam- chosen family cookout, we would both be there, right? Yeah, like yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, but we're also like, wait, where'd he come from? Where'd he come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is like I mean, my real family reunion. I'm still <laughs> indexing a third of my cousins. They're like, oh, you know your cousin. You're like, I don't. <laughs> like, no, no, I don't. <laughs> it's on you to introduce <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always say that sort of my, from my, work, I am completely intellectually and politically kind of promiscuous, you know, like I have done so many different things and, you know, the roots of where I sort of come from are always as kind of like a daughter of first gen immigrants, very working class in Poughkeepsie, New York. And it was, you know, I went to a school which was all white people except for a kind of mess of Asians. And then there were two black families. I did not like my high school at all. It was a place that, you know, I was terrified of that town and I sort of ran from it as quickly as possible to get somewhere else. But, you know, it was also a place that taught me what 
the world should not be in some ways. I mean, I'm so sorry for people who love Poughkeepsie, you know. But, oh, our, our Poughkeepsie um, contingent is, is livid. <laughs> I rent. It's true. I know. I'm sorry. You guys are going to crash out in these ratings, right? Our, um, our, Hudson, our Hudson Valley base is really just crying into the hands on the Poughkeepsie right yeah. market. Um, but... You know, I went to a woman's college where I started to become politicized. Shout out to Bryn Mawr, the Bryn Mawr Owls. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was, I mean, it was a really kind of heady atmosphere that uh, where I studied, I was a religion major. And, you know, I found out then that that's where Grace Lee Boggs went to get her PhD, right? Wow. Like, so there was like a really interesting lineage of people who had gone through that place. That's where I became a feminist and I was first exposed to those kinds of ideas. And then I went to Duke and I got a PhD um, working with Fred Jameson, who is, he's still alive, the like leading Marxist literary critic. And so I sort of became a Marxist literary critic. And it was a great time to be um, a basketball fan. <laughs> Shout out to Christian Leitner. Oh, and, uh, you were there for that? Wow. Yeah, I know. It was, it was a, it were a lot of great years and also for reading Marx and things like that. So there were like said, kind of the things that I was doing. Um, and then I'll just say that there was a kind of weird glitch that happened in my life that I don't really talk about a lot, but it really has shaped, you know, just how I live and how I think about the world, which is I got married to my high school sweetheart, just spoiler alert, it didn't work and I'm now divorced. But he started a software company, which was called Red Hat Linux, which was a kind of challenger to the Microsoft world. And it blew up and he became an internet billionaire. And so all of a sudden I was this person deeply immersed in Marxist studies and married to, you know, like one of the richest people in the world at that time. So it was just a really incredible moment of grappling with contradictions that, I mean, everyone grapples with. Just mine were like all of a sudden at this extraordinary scale and trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life? And, you know, like anybody, it was hard to get a job back then as a Marxist critic. And so, you know, it's like getting offered a job in Kentucky at a small school, or like he was already on to the next thing, which was kind of private jets and sailing boats and climbing mountains and things like that. So I took like a two-year hiatus, you know, like we moved to New York and we did all that, you know, we had this boat and, you know, we were going around the world and, you know, just sort of living in New York. And I mean, it was terrible, wonderful period where I realized how meaningless all of the stuff was, right? Like, and, and also realized the kind of praxis of what I was studying and learning about and cared about and was like, wow. And so we had kind of a parting of the ways because I didn't want to live my life like that. And he really wanted to live his life like that. You know I mean? he done his thing. And so, you know, like he retired at 30 and I then, I feel like started my real work at 30. You know, I was just sort of thinking, what do I want to do? And in my last year at Duke, I had worked on a project which was at the Women's Center that was studying sort of all the literary, historical, sociological projects around domestic violence, including like, you know, French 
scholars who were looking at 18th century cases of domestic violence and things like that. But it was bringing scholars with activists in Durham who were working at shelters and organizing with women of color. And we realized there was such a divide between scholarship and the so-called space of the university with the world of activism in Durham. And so I was the coordinator for that conference. And I just thought, wow, this should happen in all realms of scholarship, where there are so many deep wellsprings of knowledge outside of the university. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to start an organization that actually brings together university communities with activist communities. And I was trying to figure out where I should do this. I was living in New York at that time. And everybody in New York was like, oh, that's <laughs> so stupid. It already exists. <laughs> like, you know, like you should go to 92nd Street. Why? Or nobody will ever leave downtown to go uptown or the west side to go to the east side. And I had actually studied for a hot second with a English person named, um, I mean, he's not English, he's American, but he's in the discipline of English. And it was, his name is <laughs> uh, named Stanley Fish. And uh, he had sort of left Duke in his kind of elite position and come to UIC, the University of Illinois, to lead the English department. And he said to me, oh, you should come to Chicago. You can't believe how great it is. And I will throw you a party and introduce you to some people who are doing great work. And no joke, at that party were Barbara Ransby, Beth Ritchie, Bill Ayers, like this incredible crew of people who were at UIC. Mm -hmm. And literally, I met those people at that night, talked a little about what I want to do, and they really all responded and said, oh, well, by the way, that is what we're doing already. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> so please come join us. And so, you know, I picked up and I left New York and I came to Chicago to start an organization all those people, Salim Moakil, um, Joel Blyfus, you know, they all became the first board members of what at that point was called the Center for Public Intellectuals. Terrible name. <laughs> but every every rapper's got a bad first rap name. You're fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was my that terrible first rap name. Um, like legit, like we incorporated as the Center for Public Intellectuals, you know. Um public was then, a name at least, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then you know, one day we were reading, I was reading um a Cornell West book where he sort of said, you know, what the US is missing and what we are missing is a public square. And it was like, oh, like that's actually what the workers are trying to do. We're trying to create a public square that brings institutions, peoples together to explore what the public actually means. And like literally my bestie became Barbara Ransby, who then took a sabbatical to become the executive director of the public square. And I just started becoming a public programmer, a cultural organizer and doing that work. And public square eventually became adopted by the Illinois Humanities Council, which is now Illinois Humanities, and Alice Kim then became the director of that, you know, the great abolitionist and sort of anti-death penalty activist. And so I just started to meet like an incredible crew of people. And then just I'll speed up. I'm not going to narrate everything. It's a very <laughs> impressive <laughs> recently. It's a great story. I'm, I'm right here for it. <laughs> yeah. And then one day we were having a meeting um, and seven years sort of into it. And at that point, I was still working there as a 
programmer, but I'd given up the ED position and Alice was running things. And we had an event at the Jane Addams Hall House Museum. And they said, hey, you know, we're like trying to hire somebody to run this place. And nobody ever really comes here. It's, you know, the provost just uses it for parties. And like, you've done a lot of public programming. We think you could maybe run this place. And so I remember going into my job interview And I really did know how to create a public square at that point. You know, I knew Chicago. I knew the communities. I sort of knew the history of contested spaces and how to make things radically democratic in many ways. And I went into my job interview and was saying like, oh, I love Jane Hull. And they were like, yeah, that's not her name. Her name is Jane Adams and this is the Hull House. And I was like, whoops. Because I knew nothing about Jane Adams, right? right? But I really told them, like, I promise you, I will be the quickest study because I really know how to turn this place into a public space. And that's what I did. Like, for the next seven years, I became a student of the progressive era. And, I mean, I'm, like, proud to say, I mean, I think I became, like, one of the foremost Jane Addams scholars because of, you know, my work there, but also working with that history and thinking about immigrant rights, peace work, you know, the first juvenile justice defenders, you know, just, I remember sitting down Bernadine Dorn and her saying, oh my gosh, this history is so important to us as juvenile justice workers. And me being like, what? Like, how come every single person working on juvenile justice is not here organizing at the Hull House? Like just throwing the doors open and then really making sure to forefront that history. And so it was really that work that further introduced me to Chicago activism and thinking about space and place and history and memory as being so critical to movement organizing, you know, just, you know, I wasn't ever a historian. And so I really became a public historian through that work there. And then I'll just say very quickly, just because I have to, Like I'm kind of like a seven year itch kind of gal. And so after seven years of doing that work, UIC was restructuring their art school. And I, at that point, very much identified as a cultural activist. You know, I love that Tony Cade Bambera quote that the work of an artist and cultural organizers is to make the revolution irresistible. And I felt like, like that's what I really was sort of good at, like bringing together artists and cultural makers because in this world of so much unmaking and destruction, it was so important to invest in those people who are making things. And so the art school recruited me to become their first director of the UIC School of Art and Art History. Just in a whirlwind, I got tenure in art history. I'd never taken art history class before in my life, you know? And then I became the director of the UIC School of Art and Art History, you know? And so that was also at UIC. And so I did that for seven years. (laughs) And then now I'm doing my work now, which is as the director of the National Public Housing Museum, you know? And so, and just, I'll say really quickly, even though it seems random and it's like this weird world, it really is the same work. And I think you guys know this, like as activists, like it doesn't really matter like the organization that you're at, if you're at a social justice organization, because ultimately the work is so much the same. Bending the arc of justice is about intersectional work. It's about listening to, you know, Black queer feminists tell us what we should all know. I mean, you know, like that's the work. And so um, whether it's in housing or it's at an art school or a historic site, 
it all comes together um, and sort of opens up into the same capacious, you know, utopian world that, you know, we are all creating together. So, yeah. yeah. No, I love that point. And it, it actually reminds me of a, of a grace quote of like wearing your affiliations, like loose garments, and then you can let them fall when they're constricting. Um, because it sounds like from what you just, first of all, with an incredible amount of concision to tell a life story. Well, very well done. Um, Like, it sounds like there was a clarity of like, oh, this is what I contribute. It's this convening. It's the space making. uh, It's this aesthetic eye to that work as well um, and how that fits into movement. Um, But I want to go back to somewhere in that kind of formulation, not to live in the in that the time of jet setting that's not the where i want to live but you you talked about that being a moment of crystallization around praxis of like you're learning these things you're seeing the contradictions of them in real time and i know from my own life in in smaller ways those moments of crystallization of praxis are not always the easiest because you're you're experiencing contradiction and that can be really challenging you you kind of framed it as this disparate time that where then you got to your real work but but what from that kind of helped crystallize what you've done in the you know the the decades since i mean that's something that i feel like i'm still always processing right like i mean it was a weird weird time where you learn small things like wow, rich people get everything for free. Like the wealthier you are, you go to events and people are like, here, take this bag with a free watch. And, you know, like all your food is free when you are wealthy. All your entrances to everything is free, right? And so you experience the way that the so-called 1% um, actually, it's like the the whole world is topsy-turvy in sort of the distribution of resources. Yeah. Yeah, not, not to flatten your life experience, but it's almost like in a in a weird de facto way, kind of like field research, right? Because so many <laughs> folks who have like a Marxist or a left or however you want to call it, leaning a critique of capitalism, many of those specific critiques are abstract, right? Or yeah. or, or imagined or through some reproduced medium. But like to have firsthand access of seeing how wealth is ridiculous or or just the waste that is occurring. You know, I, I could imagine one, just the tension you're feeling, but how that could even like propel you further than somebody who's just like going through the, the tenure track of trying to understand how capital is organizing itself. For real. I mean, it's like no one should ever feel sorry for me. I mean, that was like <laughs> intense period, right? But the thing that you also realize is, that these problems are structural, right? Like wealthy people are just as silly and ridiculous <laughs> and powerless mm-hmm. in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. As anybody, right? Like, I mean, you'll meet like for real. I mean, they're like a rich housewife, whether, you know, she's flying jets, has, you know, $30,000 purses or whatever. I mean, she as is just as oppressed by the system and the structures as anybody else. Like she is not free, right? Like I did not feel free. I mean, I was sort of liberated from want. So I had food and I had shelter. These are really important things Mm -hmm. to have, right? And that they should, they are a human right that everyone should have. But there was not living in the kind of beloved community that Grace talks about. There was no sense that, oh, I'm sort of fulfilling a purpose on this earth 
that is meaningful and that my relationship, like all of a sudden, because I have money that somehow I'm liberated from patriarchy or, you know, from other systems of oppression. And also as an Asian woman, for real, it was also very hyper apparent. Like I had a nanny who was a white woman. Ooh, that's that's real wealth. A white nanny? <laughs> oh, wee. <laughs> yeah, that's how rich yeah, I was. Yeah, okay, yeah. Damon. <laughs> oh, wow, that's striking. Yeah. We talking, so, we talking Northern European white? Are we talking American white? You don't have to. You don't have to. <laughs> and I mean, and she was great. I just want to yeah. say, I loved Shout her. out to her. Okay. Shout out to her. Shout out. Shout out to the white nannies. Um, but, and, you know, it was, we. I would go to school and people would just really assume, of course, that I was the nanny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's mm-hmm. like, how could it be that this was a kind of structure? So, I mean, you also realize that um, there's just so much excessive wealth. And it was also the exposure to the art world, right? Mm-hmm. Like becoming an art collector. And, you know, you would sort of go to a Sotheby's auction. Like, I remember the first work we bought, and I just want to say, I no longer have it, but it was a Calder sculpture. And I remember like bidding on this thing and it was just sort of going up and being bid up. Right. And, and at some point you get it and then everybody claps and congratulates you like, Oh my goodness, congratulations. (laughs) And thinking what, because I just dropped a ridiculous sum of money and just bid the most for something. But there was a real sense of accomplishment, you know, because of that. Yeah. (laughs) Affirmation and just really understanding the critique of commodity. Right. Like, I mean, there's no, reason why these things are worth X, Y, or Z. It's like, as Mark says, it's when everything solid becomes air, right? Because it was just completely made up value. So um, like those things become very crystallized. And also this idea, like, who are your people, right? Like that's the thing that everybody that we started off talking about and that like the question that Ella Baker always asked everybody, like, who are your people? And just thinking about you're sitting at a benefit or a gala and I'm like, are these my people? You know, like, and at some point it was also like, I had to admit like, well, you were here every night and you were rocking with these people. So these are your people, no matter how displaced you feel, like these are your people, unless you change that. And I, th- and I think that's actually a pretty common feeling in whatever group people are, at least to project for me. But I think for a lot of people, the who who your we is as a default isn't always a settling feeling. Um, and then you can do something mm-hmm. from that, right? I think the thing that, at least for me and I think for others, is really helpful is to, that idea of getting to define who your we is, first of all, isn't available to everyone, but also can be very like empowering. Unless I make that choice, the default option of who I'm around uh, isn't always the most um, like soul feeding. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I want to clash this really interesting history of like the relationship of I will call it this like bizarre field research <laughs> that your life took you on uh, relative to the work you do with the public housing museum of. One, bringing an artistic eye that has been exposed to all of this elite access. Two, politicizing the history of, you know, how people surviving poverty have made and created life and understood themselves and also advocated for their lack of access to adequate shelter. So that's where I want to go. But I have a little question for projection that I want to ask. Um, so in that kind of contradiction, you tell this story so freely and so, like, honestly, at any point or still, how do you 
navigate the worry of skepticism or how do you accept the skepticism that would come from like, oh, you were part of the billionaire class. Like there is a, 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 a theoretical framework that's like, well, that makes you almost inherently immoral or something that you have to like make up for or insincere. And so you're with the folks, you're, you're at the family, you're like you tell this story very honestly. I'm sure internally there had to be a journey in like navigating that, even if it was your own projection. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate this kind of notion of um, kind of skepticism of the intellect and optimism of the will, right? Which is a kind of foundational movement principle. And I mean, I think it all comes down to like, what is the work, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the work that I'm actually doing? I mean, I have a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a kind of um, requirement that not only I share that, but that also that I commit myself to what the work is. And, you know, I try to do that every single day. And so that is, I think, the only way to assuage any kind of skepticism and not just the skepticism from others, right? Like, I mean, I think you individually wake up with that every single Mm -hmm, day. Like Daniel was saying, like, you know, every single moment as a sort of human being, I think we ask ourselves, you know, wait, am I doing the right thing in this particular moment? Am I making the right choice? You know, and so that doesn't sort of go away. I saw a thing this week that I have no idea if it's true. It was like one of those like stats you see on the internet and then you're like, huh, but it was like 30% (laughs) of, of people don't have an inner monologue. Oh, I saw that too. And I started, and I started wondering, like, (laughs) I know, I know. I started going around and looking at people and thinking like, are you a person with an inner monologue or not? And then I was pretty sure that like my dog has an inner monologue, but this other, my sister's dog does not, you know, things like that, you know? (laughs) That's what you just said is so foundational of like, and, and it can be exhausting, but every moment, every day, like, am I doing what I should be doing? Is this fitting in? You know, all that type of stuff. And then to just think there's people just, just whistling, walking down the street, reacting, moving, getting cold, getting hot, putting a jacket on, taking a jacket off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hear that both just like shocked me and like, I can't believe it. But then when I sit with it, it's like, Oh, that makes sense. Like, I'm, <laughs> these are monologueless people that are like, not to dis- you know, I don't mean to disparage. All right, let's. I, I know. Well, like one thing I just want to say about that though, because it was, you know, I also recently, ever since that article dropped, I did meet somebody who was also a, you know, very passionate practicing Buddhist. And I was like, oh, that also is the effort to sort of calm the voice, mm-hmm, to be very mm-hmm, present mm-hmm. and to live in this moment. So I guess the flip side of the people living without monologues, there might be like a whole, you know, shit ton of Buddhists out there who are living like incredibly just ethical lives who have no inner monologue also. You know? <laughs> I don't know. And, yeah, and a monologue doesn't mean it's like a good monologue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're terrible. Yeah, exactly. There's right. a lot of you shit talking like a, going on. Yeah. Right, or a complete like egoistic person who's just like, ooh, I look so good. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, like. It's <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, yeah, we, let's let's transition. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to transition. So let me just say, <laughs> when I was at the Jane Addams Hall House Museum, it was when the plan for transformation was happening, right? This incredible, terrible um, sort of city plan that Chicago launched as a response to the corrupt public housing structures in Chicago to sort of deal with public housing. They said they were going to 
um, create a new system of public housing and called it the plan for transformation. And, you know, in that moment, in an effort to save housing, it was the single largest net loss of housing in the entire United States. Like all the big projects actually came down in that moment. And they created something called mixed income housing, which is a social experiment that we are living with throughout the United States that is still largely uninterrogated. This notion that people who are living in poverty, living next to people with wealth, like in sort of, you know, Uh, actual market rate housing, like somehow that will address the issue of poverty. So instead of addressing the root causes of poverty, it became this kind of social experiment of mixed income housing. And at that time, a group of public housing residents said they wanted to save the last remaining building of the Jane Addams Homes, one of the sort of iconic public housing spaces in Chicago, to create a museum. Why did they say that? I mean, I think it's an incredibly poignant moment when they realized that one of the reasons why it was so easy to dismantle housing in Chicago was because there was a single narrative about what public housing was and why it failed. And mostly that narrative was blaming the public housing residents themselves, right? And that in order to transform this, they needed to have cultural Um, power in order to tell the story of public housing. And so they needed a museum in order to help do this. And at that time, I was at the Jane Addams Hull House Museum. They came and said, hey, can you help us create a museum? And we are part of a network called the International Sites of Conscience, a group of historic sites that believes that you need to harness the power of place and memory and not only preserve history, but to make that history relevant to contemporary social justice issues. It seems a little bit like, duh, like, of course, that's what you would do. But most historic sites do not do that. Like if you go into a mansion in Newport, like a historic house, they're not going to be like linking that to contemporary racial capitalism, right? Like they're going to be telling the story or like for that matter, if you go to Mount Vernon, one of the most prominent historic houses in the United States, the house of George Washington, you know, the first U.S. president, they're not telling the history of the enslaved people that he owned and its link to contemporary incarceration, right? So people stay in the past when they tell that history, But as a site of conscience, you're committed to linking this history to contemporary social justice issues. And that is what public housing residents want to do. So they asked me to be the first board member of the National Public Housing Museum when we got to this moment where all of a sudden they needed a director to help shape the narrative and to finally finish raising the money um, because we got the building from HUD um, and CHA. I left my job at... UIC to become the executive director of National Public Housing Museum. So that's sort of like the practical matter of how it started. But this whole time, the last 10 years, I've been thinking about this museum, trying to imagine what is the work that a cultural institution and a civic anchor could do to advance housing as a human right. And I have to say that so much of that did come from the Hull House, where seeing like sort of this incredible host of social welfare programs that these women, many of them white women who were working in solidarity with people of color, not always, you know, sort of in the best way. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I don't want to like put them on a pedestal or anything. They were grappling with, you know, their contradictions as well, but they had always included arts and culture 
as a kind of, not just a cornerstone of what they were doing, but it was always in the mix, right? Like Viola Spolin, who was a theater arts person, she believed that sort of spontaneity and improv was a key to democracy. Because like you meet somebody who seems strange and doing something which is other than the way you would do it. So how do you improv it instead of critiquing it, figure out how to roll, right? So she developed all these theater sports that eventually became the sort of foundational book for Second City Improv. But she was an activist trying to figure out democracy at the Hall House, right? So there were all these people who were working in that vein. And so theater, sports, and games were all part of democracy. Right before they voted for universal suffrage in Illinois, they actually hung out and they had like this choir. You'd read the Harper's article about it and they're like, they first came together to sing and then they voted on universal suffrage, you know, like there was no difference between that or they would, you know, hang out and have a dance and then they would organize the garment workers right after the dance. There was this kind of sense that in order to organize together, you needed to like build together to understand each other's culture and to make things. And as a cultural organizer, somebody who loved art, I was like, wow, this is really different. It's a little bit different now, but like if you go to a meeting of, you know, labor organizing or whatever, it's not necessarily that you would sort of start with poetry. I mean, we do now, I think Chicago more than any other place, right? But that was very classic for them in the progressive era, that there was just like not a divide between culture and organizing. And I was pretty convinced that that's the reason why they were so successful. Like there's, that's kind of a theory of change that I stay with that challenging our notions of what is beautiful and what is good is actually linked to our understanding of what is just and just not to go too creepy down the philosophical route. Cause that is my background. Like instead of reading all these things mm-hmm. is that Kant, the great German philosopher, <laughs> um, like, you know, he, in his critiques, like the understanding of critiquing what is beautiful is linked to the critique of justice. Like that actually is just a treatise, right? Because like in order for us to judge, like, how do you know what is beautiful? You have to like deploy the same skills and processes of thinking as we are trying to figure out like what is justice. And so like, that's a kind of human philosophical thing that's related. And that's something that has become siloed from one another oftentimes, especially in the mainstream cultural orgs. Like, it's not like you're going to the Art Institute of Chicago to have an abolition meeting, but we should be. Yeah. It's public space in certain ways. It's convening space. It's surrounded by expressions of internal and communal expression on the walls like and and so you talked about there's that siloing and I'm curious in your research and your understanding like where do you understand that siloing taking place like why did we have to kind of re-stumble on it through poetry in the early 2000s in Chicago like what happened in that disconnect (laughs) yeah I mean that's not by accident right the power of the arts is so apparent, I think, particularly for people in power. And that's why it's like the first classes that are cut from public school programs or whatever, right? Like these things are defunded because they are so powerful for unleashing our radical imaginations. And let us say that there's always been art making and always creatives at the center of organizing. 
But there's a kind of storytelling, I think, that we tell about it that um, we forget. Like people sometimes say, like about the Black arts movement, um, that, oh, maybe they were the creative wing of Black power. And there's a kind of way where you prioritize, you know, Black power and organizing and make the Black arts sort of subsidiary to it. But you could also flip the script, you know, and say that Black power was kind of the social organizing of the Black arts movement, right? Like there's a kind of way where they're they're not really separate, but I think as people telling that history and making sense of it, we tend to like divide them and make them into separate things, but they're so intimately entangled when we're experiencing them. And so the siloing, I think, is not actually what's happening at the moment, like if you read like Cesar and like sort of the surrealists who were working at the time of anti-colonialist, you know, sort of efforts, anti-imperialism, they are center. But when you're studying the history of anti-colonial efforts and anti-imperialism, you're not necessarily sitting around reading poetry all day, but you should be also, right? So there's a kind of history telling that silos them less than the movement piece, because I think in Chicago, definitely, um, like some of our leading, you know, <laughs> movement organizers are also poets and musicians and, you know, rappers and DJs, you know, things like that. But later on, when they tell this moment, they will tell this history probably separated, you know, in different tracks. Not if we have anything. That's why we made the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have been right. documenting exactly. explicitly what your name and no, it's, it's actually- Yeah, take- Take that, Poughkeepsie people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got so, smoke for Poughkeepsie today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, really, when you talk about like the collective creative power, you start to get into something that like transcends the material and some people even like name it as spiritual and, and energetic. You know, a lot of times people say they came to the protest. They don't speak about like this great line of analysis, two thirds through the rally speech. They, they, they speak to this like collective body that they felt a part of and this like out of body experience. And so specifically in this work with the the public housing museum, can you recall one of those first times, especially if it was like creatively informed that you had that flutter or that that experience of excitement or spiritual enrichment that like oh we we are doing this work. We are archiving this in a way that that feels right. Oh wow, that's such a good question. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, but isn't that what people say when they actually don't think it's such a great <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'll give you a little bit of the No, thing. no, no. <laughs> no, well, one, I want to say that, interestingly enough, even though I'd been a cultural organizer in Chicago working on many things for the last, you know, decade plus, housing was really not necessarily at the center of our conversations until recently, I would say, in the last couple of years. I mean, I do feel like public housing in the last couple of years has become more of an issue, partially, I think, because of the pandemic and because of our awareness of land and space and things like that. You know, so the work on housing for me has actually been relatively new. And I do feel like it's incredible to see, like, for example, in the kind of last landmark CTU Chicago Teachers Union negotiations, like they made housing for their students, like one of the demands, which I think was so beautiful and unexpected for some people, right? Because it wasn't like a kind of normal thing. And there's a way where the issue of housing 
I think, I mean, I don't know. It's just because I'm working on housing now. I feel like it's at the center of everything, <laughs> you know, depending on what I'm working on. Like for real, when I was at Hall House, I was like immigration. It is the center of everything in the beginning of everything, you know, or whatever you might say. But, you know, in this way that we organize, they're all sort of windows that lead into the same place. But I do feel like housing is very central and it's a kind of thing where listening to housing organizers speak and like having events where all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, like public housing, like where we invest it and thinking about prison as a form of public housing. And why is it that we're so willing to invest in prisons, but not actually in other forms in public housing, right? So I I feel like that was a real transformative moment of also being in Stateville prison. I taught a class there about public housing with Ben Austin and a couple of the guys there saying, oh yeah, there's like a real public housing to prison pipeline, which are the spaces that are most surveilled in our country, like in the eighties and nineties. And like, where is this population? Like, like 99% of my guys that I was teaching in Stateville had all lived in public housing at some point. Right. And so thinking about these relationships was, oh yeah, housing is a really important space to be organizing in if we care about all these things. And certainly as a feminist thinking about the ways that women's leadership in public housing communities emerged you know because of incarceration of so many black men there was just like all these things that i cared about that were in sort of the public housing history and so i was like wake up wake up you know pay attention to this i would say that i'm really still a, a really kind of new learner about public housing. I'm struck that there seems to be kind of silos of groups who work for public housing versus affordable housing versus market rate housing. Like they're not necessarily the same people. And like you go to a sort of public housing gathering and you're like, wait, this is really different than other groups who are at some other gathering. And also- Go ahead. I would say, can you name that distinction of those rooms or groups or what are the, the ideological tracks that might separate those folks? Oh, geez. I mean, okay, I'm just going to talk about something that it's really relevant right now to what's happening in Chicago, for example. There are these sort of fields that have been vacant for decades. And Mayor Lightfoot and the CHA have sort of decided to sell those fields to Monsuedo to build the Chicago Fire to actually build soccer fields. And public housing leadership supports the sale. They've worked really, really hard. And I'm talking about public housing leadership as in the head of the CAC, the LACs, the way that public housing residents organize themselves. They're elected leadership. And so Miss Mary Baggett is the head of ABLA and a long time you know, sort of fierce defender of ABLA residents. And she was in meetings, you know, sort of daily, weekly, you know, trying to figure out the best deal for public housing residents. And so she supports the sale. There are housing activists throughout the city who don't support the sale and who are completely dumbfounded. And also public housing residents who live in that area who also don't support the sale because they're like, how is it that we can be selling land that's destined for housing to be soccer fields, right? And then sort of there's kind of people who 
support the future of housing in Chicago who are like, well, this will generate X amount of income. And they're also really divided. So, I mean, it's a a messy, messy situation. And it's really hard to sort of name. It's like when people would say, oh, well, the Asians or the Arabs, like people sometimes do that to public housing residents, like public housing residents. And you realize that there's not like one unified voice, right? Like they're sort of really different. And I would also say, going back to Damon's question, I mean, I am a deep, deep believer in the analysis of Kianga Yamada-Taylor and her amazing book, Race for Profit, where she really sort of not only tells an incredible history of a moment of when People focus a lot on redlining and when Black folk were sort of cut out from getting mortgages. But she tells the sort of a little bit of the post-history of when there was like a lot of predatory mortgage lending, when people were completely exploited, you know, with bad sort of lending practices. And the sort of takeaway from her book, which she's so strongly and just like makes an argument that is unavoidable for us to, you know, sort of dispute is that as long as housing is seen as a commodity and something on the free market, that it can never actually be a human right. It will never be justly distributed. And there's no way that any sort of business or private entity is going to invest in affordable housing because you can always make more money like making, you know, a luxury billion dollar sort of, you know, house or a penthouse apartment than building sort of public housing, right? So it's going to have to be a public good and part of the Commonwealth if we actually want it. Now, to say that and to understand that analysis is really different than when you sort of go and you're meeting with public housing residents who might say like, we really want to own our own home someday. Like we want to own a private home. And if you're doing a reading of Kianga's work with them and also sort of talking about how there's a way where collectively owned housing or cooperative housing or different forms of housing could be really empowering, right? You're like challenging a whole analysis and life experience of people, right? And so, and this is no different than anybody. Like, I remember going to a gathering that Miriam Kaba had put together. It's just true. And it was people who were formerly incarcerated. And they were like, yeah, like, I don't understand why you're talking about abolition in prison because you've never been to, you know, prison and, you know, and her saying like, well, just because you've been to prison doesn't mean you have an analysis of prison. Like your voice is really important, but like there's kind of analysis of housing. Right. And so it's the same thing with public housing was like not all public housing residents have an analysis of public housing, although they have a lived experience, which is completely valuable and important. Right. And so, but there are like, there's a kind of analysis of what's happening that, is really important. And so you're like entering different sort of groups that have different lived experiences. You might have a lot of young, um, and I'll just completely stereotype a group of young social Democrats who are white, 
and live in Logan Square mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> who are like fighting for equity, right? And I would say like, I shout out to them, love them. They're great. And I think they're really important. But we, we get some Logan Square listens. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're up there. Yeah. They're, they're running the, Poughkeepsie into the, the Hudson Poughkeepsie River. Poughkeepsie, yeah. Logan <laughs> Square no, exactly. beef is happening yeah. right now. And <laughs> some of them probably went to Vassar. It's a perfect <laughs> Yeah, <environment>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I'm saying that they, they might be in a room with a public housing resident and, you know, who has the analysis and like, what is the vision of the world, right? And so, are they challenging Mary Baggett, who is the elected leadership of ABLA, who is saying this is really important for us to sell these fields in order for the ABLA community to get what they want? And they're coming with a different analysis and a different lived experience. And going back to the public square, it's like like we are all united and need to be in our analysis in order if we're going to actually win this battle. But, you know, we're coming from different spaces. And People don't dance together and don't sing together and don't build together. And so they don't see one another as part of the we, you know, I mean, they really see one another as different people. So, you know, yeah, that's exactly where I was landing in, in you telling this, this story too, of if the only time also that people are interacting is in these kind of ideological battles, that can't be the only room that people are connecting with each other. People don't communicate well <laughs> when they're disagreeing like that. Like, how are you going to be that Logan Square contingent and tell someone, no, what you want for your community is wrong? Also, how, as that person, you're going to go like, I'm in this leadership position and I'm not going to listen to you. Like, if you don't know each other at all, there are lots of examples of kind of like disparate bedfellows working together in movement, but it's when they know, when they sing and they dance together, like you said, too. And I love, this connects kind of to your story of like, you didn't enter the space through like a symposium or a conference, like your big homie threw a party for you and you like kicked it and <laughs> chopped it up with everybody. And like, you know, all these years later, you know, it is your chosen family. So that, that really resonates. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about some of that memory and history of public housing, um, because I do think, as you alluded to, like it really is at the center when you're doing organizing work, like there's so many examples where you're there to talk about a specific issue or a referendum or a campaign. And within, usually it's like 45 minutes to an hour of interacting with, you know, if you're just talking to people on the street or you have like a table set up, like the need and the the disparities around housing, like come to the forefront. Like as soon as you start distributing resources, as soon as you start distributing information, like that's where you end up. And often I think, because we don't, you know, as a, a a single organization or a campaign have the wherewithal or the bandwidth to provide the house. You know, you can provide lunch, but you can't provide a house. And so people get a little intimidated by it or it feels like, oh, no, this is beyond the capacity what we know how to do. And so I'm wondering in the history making that you've done and connecting that to the moment in the museum, what have you learned about how people have fought for housing in ways that have been effective that we should know in our campaigns and in our our organizing now? Well, first, I want to say that the Public Housing Museum, how we started was with oral history, because the stories of public housing residents are just not documented in the same way that wealthy white men have archives and things like that. So we launched an oral history program, which is now um, being led by someone named Liu Chen, um, who has just launched something called the Beauty Turner Oral History Academy, which is this incredible way of training public housing residents and other people with meaningful connection to public housing to become oral historians 
and we pay them to gather stories for this archive, which is also supported by the Mellon Foundation and is going to be the you know nation's largest archive of public housing stories. The other th- answer to your question is that you know public housing stories are not just people fighting for housing, <laughs> right? Like it's a, it's an incredibly rich, capacious history. And so sometimes when we say public housing or public housing resident, there's a kind of vision that we have, which is inflected by our deeply racialized history. Or like you expect it to be an African-American person who's like struggling and fighting for housing. And that's not the case, right? Like the stories of public housing are like so incredibly diverse and rich of different types of people at different moments of their life. And their stories of not just resilience, because I sort of hate that word, but of just like remarkable um, community gathering, economic fortitude, you know, ingenuity. There's just like so many different stories that come and emerge from public housing. And so part of the work of the museum is to sort of really challenge that notion that there is a single narrative. And I love that quote by Chimamanda Ngozi Dice, where she says, like, when you challenge the single narrative, you regain a kind of paradise. And that is sort of what you sit and listen to these stories. You're just like, oh my gosh, like this is magical, like truly. And so, you know, one of the things that you sort of learn and it is sort of, it's exactly what Robin D.G. Kelly talks about that, you know, there are sort of acts of individual resistance every single day that aren't necessarily sort of formal forms of organizing. It's the way that people tricked out their apartments to like have a candy store and to sort of build uh, their own sort of capital and other capital for their communities to like sort of serve people like and what the needs were because there weren't actually sort of public goods that were distributed or the ways that people self-organized in these campaigns for the tenant patrol that tried to create real public safety in spaces that didn't have any public safety, but instead had police acting with impunity. And so they organized themselves and uh, said, all right, we're going to be the tenant patrol and we're going to check on the old folks and make sure that their lights are on and they have heat and then walk the kids to school and sort of walk a beat and make sure things are safe for everybody. Or the stories of people coming together and just um, making music and, you know, creating joy in spaces where people might be like, wow, like how could you create joy in a space where like the elevator was constantly broken and you had to walk up 22 flights of stairs every single day. Right. And, but you know, for the story that people want to tell is a different story. And there's a Rebecca Solnit quote. Sorry, I like rock with all the quotes all the time. I live live, live my life like in sort of all these quotes. quotes. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, she sort of says like, no matter how many times you tell the story and how well you tell the story, it's never your story to tell. It's like always somebody else's story first, right? I remember going to um, interview Bobby Rush about his experience and living in Robert Taylor Holmes. And I wanted the story of how he became politicized and joined the Black Panthers at the Robert Taylor Homes, right? Because that's like something that's been documented in history. But he wanted to talk about his mama 
and how they lived adjacent to Gabrini Green and his friends who were in Gabrini. And like for him, that was the most meaningful public housing story. And it was like this beautiful story about what it meant to be living in such close proximity to a community and him longing to be a part of this community at Cabrini. And, you know, that was the public housing history that he wanted to tell. The other thing that I want to say is we live kind of in a moment of storytelling now. And there's like a kind of weird fetish of storytelling. Like you, like the sort of, uh, you know, there's just like the storytelling is hot in these streets right now. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, <laughs> Um, I mean, it's like radio sort of does that to us and we expect to know what a good story is, right? And it has like an arc and all this kind of stuff. And the thing about oral history is that even though I say it because it's good for fundraising, like we're about stories, oral history is not the same as a story because oral history is the truth (laughs) as somebody experiences it. And sometimes it makes no sense. Sometimes the like narrator is actually not just a hero or a tragic hero, but like even it's not a type, you know, it's like a real human being. And so sometimes we might hear it and be like, wow, this is not a good story, but it actually is the story. And I'll just, I'll give an example. Like I remember we were restoring these amazing, beautiful animal sculptures that were at the Jane Addams homes that were made by Edgar Miller. And they became a kind of centerpiece for community and the built environment of public housing has always included a lot of public art, you know, because it helps to bring people together. And these are really amazing animal sculptures. So I remember going out interviewing Jade Adams Holmes residents to be like, Ooh, tell me your story of these animals. And people saying, what animals? I didn't know they were there. (laughs) Right. And you're like, Oh, that's not a good story. Yeah, like we that's not the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, but I mean, that's the story, right. And as you sort of find out, it's because also those animals were in a courtyard that African-Americans and other people of color do not feel comfortable going into because the Jane Adams homes, even though they were officially not segregated public housing complexes, they were still under the sort of Icky's neighborhood composition rule, which was a rule that all public housing had to follow, which, you know, was a concession of the U.S. government to Southern whites that they would create public housing, you know, in the 1937 Housing Act, but it would actually still reflect the racial demographics of that particular neighborhood. So in that neighborhood, if you only had 10% Black folk, you can only have 10% Black folk in a community, and they had to be living in a particular space. And so that's what happened in the Jane Addams homes. And it wasn't until you know residents fought and went all the way to the state Supreme Court that they could challenge that and sort of desegregate those spaces. And so like there are unexpected stories and things that don't necessarily make sense and challenge our notion of common sense that happen all the time in the archives. But I think that's really important because that is the only way that we really start to tell history and not just Mm -hmm. stories to one another. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes about process also of how you're gathering it, not just what the story is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, And I love how dynamic and humanizing that approach is. And it, 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 it leads me to, a simple but big question. You know, I, I, I'm hearing the way you talk about like centering the humanity and way folks experience the process um, and this like practice of oral history, 
leading you to, to to housing. And we are having a similar experience right now. We are actually currently working on producing a documentary, audio documentary, partnered with People for Community Recovery out of Allgill Gardens, centering Hazel Johnson, Cheryl yeah, Johnson. That's great. And the environmental yep. justice movement. And so, you know, similarly, we we came to tell a story about environmental justice and we learned that one, the environmental justice movement and this story is really about public housing. Um, yeah. And so the the context I have is like, so we, we have CHA as a, an active agent and creator of redlining and housing segregation in this story that we're telling about, like, you know, also environmental racism and intentionally placing a black community on toxic landfill and dumping toxic chemicals in this community. Uh, but then the way you describe it, I've heard you say it before. Um, the destruction of public housing at the turn of the century as the largest destruction of housing in the history of the United States. There's a way that that doesn't like register <laughs> in public conscience. Like people know that people know like the projects got tore down or they tore down the towers, but in the way that there's like a disgust or a, um, a political black mark on the Emanuel administration of the largest closing of public schools, it feels like there's a disconnect even though that school closure was only possible because of the demographic change that came from destroying all of that public housing. And so I'm given all that context and all of that bigness to ask the very simple question of like, from a restorative standpoint, we have to center the harm. And how do you process or how do you name just how harmful CHA and FHA, but particularly here in Chicago, CHA has been? I mean, I guess I would also challenge a little bit the narrative that you gave because- please. Yeah. I mean, only because, you know, there's another kind of grand narrative that we tell about this place named Chicago, which, as we all know, is indigenous land, is that, you know, when Daniel Burnham had finished that 1909 plan of Chicago, like we always talk about it, like make no small plans, right? There's a real story of when he walked over to visit Jane Addams because he had made this kind of perfect plan of Chicago but he had forgotten one thing and he went to ask her like I can't figure out where do the poor people live like if you look at this plan that he made it's so ambitious but there was zero provisions for housing because this effort to reimagine a rapidly growing city was a proposal to beautify and improve efficiency in business and commercial enterprises. It wasn't actually for the people, let alone sort of by the people. So the kind of roots of this sort of city plan that we have never included housing and never was for us, right? It was always for business and commercial interests. And then if you look at and sort of take seriously all of the work that Richard Rothstein has done in The Color of Law, and you know a lot of other scho- scholars do have written and talked about this, that like from jump, plans for public housing in the United States always were sort of filled and baked in with white supremacy and racism and segregation. And that sort of expresses itself in not just the placement of where public housing was, but also who was allowed to live where. And I agree with you that this incredible story of environmental justice and Hazel Johnson and this kind of fierce identification of lead poisoning and like all of these things that were happening very intentionally and with people sort of knowing about it, it is yet another moment of it. So it's not like it started then, 
or started with Rahm Emanuel, there's a kind of continuation of the story of white supremacy that there's certain players who just are either shamelessly, you know, sort of advocates for (laughs) and avatars for in some way. So I would sort of say that. And yes, once we tell this history, and this is the only part that I really love about storytelling per se, is that storytelling, the giving of accounts, it has the same etymology as accountability. Etymology, see what I'm trying to say. Right? Like moral accountability. This is the same etymological root as fiscal accountability, like the keeping of accounts, right? And so there's a kind of root to storytelling, moral and civic responsibility, and fiscal accounts. That means that there needs to be a kind of reparative framework that reinvests in neighborhoods in these sort of histories if we actually really call people to be accountable for this history, right? But I do think it's important that the work that I feel like we're doing at National Public Housing Museum is not just to create a beautiful archive of the story that who knows how it will be used. Like, yes, we do believe that it can be used in infinite ways and we want media makers and other people to deploy these histories in whatever way. But for us, it's really clear that this should be linked to calling people to be accountable for this history and also for us to call for reparations and to reinvest and have remediations. And there are like amazing sort of urban planners and organizers who actually have really good remediative suggestions. This maybe goes back to what Daniel was asking about, right? Because zoning, if you know the history of zoning in the United States, it was like completely racist. It was like, let's zone the city so we can keep certain people out, right? But there's a way to flip that script and say, well, now with zoning, we could actually use it to remediate some of these harms, right? To sort of zone spaces so that limit single family homes, but include sort of affordable housing or the way that we sort of limit square footage and stop giving permits to like build certain kinds of spaces in city spaces, right? Like all of these things could be done to remediate past harms um, in a way that makes sense. And there's a kind of careful, I think, nuanced thing I just want to raise about this history of environmental justice, which is something that is really important for us to grapple with. So when I was teaching this class at Stateville, people were really excited to learn about all these new studies that show how much lead poisoning was in public housing. There's a Michigan study that links lead poisoning to decision-making and sort of criminality. And so some of the guys in there were like, man, maybe I could use these studies to show that that was the cause for me actually committing a crime. And then there were other guys that were like, wait a minute, this sounds like a weird form of eugenics that I'm going to commit a crime because I grew up in public housing. Like, I think we have to be really careful about the scholarship, right? And so there's a lot of people now who are working to sort of also raise some critical questions about how do we actually deploy some of the scholarship for storytelling? Because there's a kind of way that our narratives of racism seep back into these things that we try are trying to like get remediated for. I know that was like not very clear, but I think it's a really critical work. And I just want to call out a, a really great scholar named Cassie Fennell, who 
She had written this incredible story about heating in CHA and showed how, you know, anybody who has ever lived in public housing tells a story of like, oh, it was so hot. Yes. It's just like so incredible. It's like a reference that still lives. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. And part of the thing is at some moment, and as part of neoliberalism, they were like, oh, okay, we will give you more control over your heating and cooling. And so we will stop paying for that. And then that becomes part of your own bill. And then that sort of winter, the most people sort of froze to death because they actually couldn't afford heat. Right. So So there's like a kind of way where the agency of individuals gets turned on its head in order to defund public goods and the Commonwealth. And I think we just have to be so careful of how we deploy these stories, you know, and sort of thinking about what we want for the future, too. But the starting point, regardless of it sounds like, is still you have to tell the truth. You have to have people tell their truth. And then that becomes kind of a, if not battleground, a contested space. But if you don't you can't begin the account without the account. Yes. And also, I wouldn't say that there are individual bad players, but it doesn't necessarily make so much sense to me, I guess, as a cultural organizer to make it about individual bad players because they are these institutional forms of oppression that are really bad. So, yes, the, the CHA, right? There's been people who worked there that have been more aware or attuned to housing as a human right and their job to advance public housing. And there are people who are less, who don't believe that public housing is a right and actually maybe part of the problem, which is terrible. Like you should not be working at, you know, a housing authority. If you think that <laughs> that's right? the irony of, of, of these things, it's like, how do y'all find these jobs? <laughs> right. That's the deep shame of it. But, you know, but the reality is it's an institution, right? Like there are hundreds of people, if not thousands of people who work there. And there's all sorts of institutional structures that are put into place that one person is not going to be able to change. And I remember having this conversation when UIC Social Justice Institute, you know, had sort of brought up people in Chokwe's administration to talk about like, oh my gosh, it's so incredible. We're now in power and we're going to affect change. And, you know, and that because now that he's the mayor, we're going to be able to do all these different things. And then you get into office and then you're like, oh, wait, there's kind of Miss Ida who is processing, you know, invoices downstairs. And she's like, what? You're saying that I've been doing it wrong all these years? And you're like, oh, like we just won this major campaign and there's Miss Ida who's stopping us, you know, who's on the ground floor. And there's like a kind of way where like, yeah, there's like the human relations parts of it, like stops people from really affecting change. And you're referencing Jackson, Mississippi, right? Yeah. In Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, right now too, we have a board member, Mark Teeley, who is the head of NARO, which is the National Association of Housing Sort of Authorities in the United States. He is a houser. And what that means is he's deeply committed to housing as a human right. <laughs> I love that phrase, houser. <laughs> sounds like yeah, it, it would like be like some like big 10 football thing yeah, too. Yeah. Like go house it. Yeah. <laughs> and you and you read that there's this moment of time in like sort of the earliest 20th century, that there were people who were housers who like they identified as such because they did not believe that the private marketplace could ever, 
account for housing in the United States. It had to be the government's responsibility, right? And these were like deep debates that happened back then. And they were some of the people who helped to craft the 1937 housing legislation to push for the government to be part of housing in the United States. Now, the thing is, that narrative contradicts the Rothstein narrative, which is basically like the hammer on the nail saying, this has always been racist. It's always been terrible. It's true. Both of those actual truths actually exist. You know, that there were really good people who really believed that the government should be responsible for housing and with all of their great intentions, were trying to do this work, right? That's the other thing about working in the world of storytelling is that you realize that there are these kind of competing truths that coexist at the same time. And, you know, I always tell the story, so I'm sorry, I'm going to quickly tell it again. But in the South African truth and reconciliation process, they, by necessity, had to recognize four different kinds of truths. You know, they had to recognize forensic truth, which is like the facts that they can't be denied. But then they recognized sort of our individual narrative truths, but then they had to acknowledge dialogic truth, which is what do we do with these truths when we bring them together and they contradict one another? But then the role of government is to create restorative truth, which is making sense of forensic individual narrative and dialogic truths, right? And so I feel like that is such a good model for government and all of us in this work and for people who are doing restorative justice work, which is to sort of say, like, in this history of housing, there's going to be, like, the forensic facts. And we need to get those facts sort of straight, right? And that's really important. But that's only one thing. And in the past, people used to think that museums' work was to sort of tell those truths. But, I mean, that's just too shallow. I mean, you can go on the internet, you can pick up a book. Like, that's not the role of museums and cultural institutions. Like, forensic truth is important, and we have to acknowledge it. But then you have, like, the independent narrative truth. How do you give people a space to, like, speak their truths? But then the work of civic and cultural institutions, I think, is to push for that restorative truth and to be like, okay, what does that mean? How do we do that work of taking those accounts, calling for accountability, and pushing sort of money and resources to actually remediate, to sort of make sense of those histories, you know? And so I think that's where it sort of comes together for me at the Public Housing Museum and the work that we're doing is to be that kind of civic and cultural space. Yeah. When you're talking about the South Africa example, it made me think of something you referred to earlier, which was uh, the museum being part of this international, can you remember the sites of conscience, right? That was what it was called? Yeah. And so I'm curious if there are other examples in other national social cultural contexts that you've learned about through being part of this international consortium that you feel like could be helpful in the same way that that is also. Because I think we we tend to not bring an internationalist lens to thinking about what repair and healing and remediation could look like. Yeah. So for example, District 6 Museum is a part of this network. They are in South Africa and they're a group that has been working really hard to think about restorative justice and what it means and sort of address racial capitalism and to like think about what were the battles of being anti-apartheid about and how is it that now 
society is also incredibly unjust, right? Like what were the things that were missed in the sort of process that still need to be addressed in order for the society to be more equitable? And so they're like an amazing organization and institution that's doing that kind of work. There's also a lot of historic sites that are sites of torture in South America and other places that are part of this network that are doing work around how do you actually ask somebody to tell their story over and again without re-traumatizing them? Because like stories are really powerful, but they also can be a source of trauma. So how do we actually um, sort of tell a story in a way that doesn't reinscribe harm, which I think is really, really important and something that we're also learning from. We have a cultural workforce program at the National Public Housing Museum. Our educators and our docents are people with lived experience of public housing. And, you know, we were working with amazing guy named Robert Scott. And during the Chicago Architectural Biennial, we had an exhibit at the site and he was the tour guide. I mean, he would break down telling the story of looking at this vacant space that used to be where his auntie lived, his sister lived, and, you know, his whole family lived, but now they are in a diaspora and displaced because of it. And I realized like, oh my gosh, like as a museum, we actually have to have trauma-informed practices in order to really create a cultural workforce training program, right? And so a lot of these sites of torture have done incredible work thinking about how to do this work as part of sort of staff training and other things. And then even in the United States, there's good work happening at Eastern State Penitentiary, which is also a site of conscience, which was an old prison. And, you know, they're doing really good work linking this history to current abolition practices and the history of incarceration. So, like, it's a site that we are continually learning from. And also, I hope you know, providing examples for how to do this work because we have a great director of public programs and her name is Tiff Beatty. And she, (laughs) oh, is she again? She actually, um, she, her title is arts, culture, and public policy. You know, like we very intentionally linked those three things together. Um, and I really think, you know, she is like forging examples for also these other sites of conscience for like, how do you actually do work that links arts to policy reform, like with her efforts with Tanika Lewis-Johnson in sort of equity for sale. Um, and, you know, there's just like a lot of amazing things that I think MPHM is doing because of the people that we've brought in to the work. Yeah, I mean, that has been from the from the ways that we're on the outside of it, the, the vibe that we've gotten is like, oh man, first of all, these are good people being put together and two, like look at the what I've seen come out has been like, not just look at how cool this thing is, but like, look at what it's doing and look at the the contribution that this is doing. So um, for what it's worth, kudos on that. It's like, it's a big deal. And to see the kind of public work of that and the square that that's building has been meaningful, at least, you know, as people trying to think about how we do this work too. Yeah. That means a lot coming from you all, like for real. I mean, it's hard, um, you know, to sort of be forging this space because, I mean, a lot of times if people are saying, like, if you care about housing as a human right, like, why don't you take that money and just create more housing? 
right? I mean, that's like a legit and also real question. And it also is that, you know, like we're, yes, we should be doing that also. And I just want to say that the back of the building also now includes 15 units of mixed income housing that we're excited about, but also, you know, cautious about because thinking about the future of mixed income. Um, But, you know, we're trying to do the good work and also, like I said, open for critique, you know, hopefully with radical generosity, (laughs) you know, hearing and listening to it. And to that point, you know, we should be doing that. It comes back to who is the we that we're talking about, right? Is that one museum organization's role? Is that a movement's role? Is that a state's role? Like, I think it's yeah, yeah. Not not to just have your back, but I do have your back on that. Of like, it could, it's can be a valid critique, and there's a like, come be part of that we. If that's what you think we should be doing, come be part of the we. You know? Yeah. Real talk. Well, thank you for being part of our we. Yeah, I feel like that's that's actually a good place. Of we started off with like the chosen family. Right. And now we're we're at this notion of like, who is the we, who is the responsible. And so as you have basically dedicated your lifetime to the public in different iterations, how do you understand how people create we in the public? Just kind of as a, a way to close out. I mean, I think the thing that I found so stunning about working at the Public Housing Museum was that it is less about housing as it is about the history of the public, right? Like our contested, troubled relationship with this understanding of what is a really rich public sphere, which doesn't just exist to police the private, you know? And understanding a kind of public sphere in all of its capaciousness and possibility makes us really understand also like what it means to be a private individual and like sort of what freedom actually is. There's a beautiful quote. I'll end with that (laughs) from from my guy. Like, you know, I wrote a dissertation on Theodore Adorno. Like nobody has read it. It's my like first book. (laughs) It's called Dialectic of the Body. Um, The philosophy of Theodore Adorno. Yeah. If I just saw that title, I would would, would throw that in my my shopping cart. Title will make you it. It'll make you adore Adorno. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, and in it, he sort of talks about like people think that becoming an individual is about sort of freedom from others, but it's the moment that you realize that your freedom is only in being in relationship to others. That is like the core of what it means to be a human being in this world. And I think that is so important and critical. Like we only realize our individual freedom with and in solidarity with others, working alongside with others. And like when people recognize that, it really transforms how we act in this world, you know, and sort of the reasons we do it. Amen. That's beautiful. Um, Before we get out of here, uh, how can people find your work, your thoughts, the work of the museum and other ways you'd want to be found? 
Yes, definitely go to our website at nphm.org and sign up for, you know, newsletter and also find out about our events there. If people are interested in becoming oral historians and either working for us, with us, or also just learning skills to do what other kind of work that they want to do, they should also look us up, look up Liu Chen. Um, we have an amazing artist as instigator series um, that uh, Tiff Beatty helps to run. And so we have a lot of programs related to that. We're also going to be in Millennium Park in a residency this next summer, sort of highlighting the musicians of public housing, which is really exciting and doing. And we have a lot of um, sort of toolkits on our website as well around storytelling, um, around civic love, a kind of signature project of ours. So you can find us there. You can find me at my own handle, which is Doc Lisa Yun Lee. And so those are some ways to find us. I also feel like it would be a, a travesty if we didn't mention the fantastic glasses. I know that's not going to be important <laughs> for listeners, but it set the tone the moment you got them for, for listeners. They're two big, would you, I, th- I guess they're heart shapes, right? Yeah, they are heart shapes. Yeah. yeah. And just from the moment you got on, I was like, oh, like I'm looking through love at this person. This is very nice. Here. So thank you so much for, for being here and, uh, and learning with us and helping us, helping us learn too. Um, thank you so much. Of course, of course. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Dama underscore AF. And we'll be back reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.